Our New Testament lesson is taken from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 11, and verses 28 to 30, the Gospel of the Lord. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. In his uh, famous epic poem, The Iliad, Homer tells the story of Achilles. Achilles was a very violent man, driven by the desire to seek his own honor, He alternates uh, throughout the Iliad uh, from scenes of pouting and selfishly withdrawing from others who need his help in battle to, on the other hand, lashing out in rage and in fury in a quest for vengeance that leads death and collateral damage left and right. For those who have read the Iliad, you know what role he plays. But if we just heard those descriptors of a modern character today, we would assume he's the villain And yet in the Iliad, he's actually the hero. There's an English professor that I talked with recently whose class was reading the Iliad, and and she told me that the class was struck that these were the attributes of, of the, quote, hero, and just noticed how different that is from what we consider admirable qualities today. And so she asked her class, many of whom were born, obviously, over 2,500 years after it was written, she asked them, what happened since... This was written. What has changed what we consider to be attributes of a hero today? Eventually, one brave student volunteered an answer that sounded too simple to be true and yet profound at the same time. Jesus? Yes, Jesus. You see, in the 2,000 years since the day of Jesus Christ, many things have changed, but many things have changed precisely because of Jesus and his followers, from the virtues that we find admirable today, to the kinds of stories that we tell, to the way that we even mark our own calendars and histories. So much has changed because of Jesus, but not because of Christ himself, but also because of the body, the church, that has shaped culture that has changed the way that we experience life today, and perhaps the most influential thing of that throughout history, apart from Christ himself, has been the way that the body of Christ, everyday, average, ordinary followers of Jesus, have learned to relate to each other and to the world around them. What does it look like when the gospel starts affecting the way that we relate to each other? What should that look like? That's what we're going to look at today as we take a look at Paul's letter to the Galatians In chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, if you have a pew Bible and you want to follow along, it's page 1,816. This is God's word. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word 
must also share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who reaps, or one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. There's a lot more going on in this passage than we can address in one sermon. So this morning, I just want to ask three questions that I believe this passage helps us to answer. What do gospel-shaped relationships actually look like? What hinders those from becoming a reality in our lives? And in light of that, how are they actually possible? So first, what do gospel-shaped relationships look like? Well, if you want the the TLDR, the too-long-didn't-read answer, um, caring involvement in the lives of others. Uh, But that can actually look a lot of different ways. And so if you can imagine, it won't be hard for some of you, imagine about two weeks ago when you're driving home from class or school and for some reason it takes ten times as long as before because something called Winter Storm Gia decided to dump about a foot of snow on the region. Many of you saw what it was like on the news reports, just like red lights backed up for miles in one direction and nothing in the other because roads had become impassable. Some people actually had to wait until about five the next morning before they could finally come for help. No matter what they were doing, no matter how they tried, they were literally spinning their wheels, buried in snow. Some of them slid off into a ditch, their cars themselves becoming buried and honestly barely noticeable. They became caught in the storm. I want you to picture that in your mind as we uh, look at verse 1. Where, bro- where Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, here's what to do. By saying that someone is caught in a sin carries the sense of being overtaken by it, by like a storm that you just couldn't outrun. Practically speaking, it may be a pattern of sin, one that someone has uh, followed so often um, that they end up in the ditch so many times, it's almost like there's grooves that run right in there so it becomes harder to actually drive straight when they get near that besetting temptation or sin. Maybe it's something that they're blind to themselves, uh, something that comes up so often that others are starting to notice it, but for some reason they never notice it. It could be a quick temper or a sharp tongue that often causes a lot more harm than good when they try to correct somebody. Maybe it's an approach to their work life that dishonors not only the ones that they work for, but the ones that they work with, but they don't notice it because everyone else is doing the same thing. Maybe it's just the trajectory that their life is on about to skid off a road, so to speak, about to fall right in the ditch, right off a cliff. Paul says that if you see that, love is not indifferent. Love takes action. But the action he calls us to isn't just some form of, tell them to push harder. Tell them to give it a little more gas. Because obviously if that would have worked, they wouldn't have been stuck in the first place. They wouldn't be caught where they are. You see, just because they got into the situation on their own doesn't mean they can just get out of it on their own. Think of it this way. Maybe if you're a child, or if you have children, or heck, we all remember being a child, you can imagine this situation. A parent tells their child for the 300th time, don't jump on the bed. Don't try climbing that old dead tree. Don't take Susie's skateboard down Dead Man's Hill. Why do you think they call it Dead Man's Hill? And of course, the ears go in this ear, they go out that ear, like the previous 299 times, and they go out to play, 
But then this time something happens. An old branch breaks off while they're hanging on it. They miss the bed. They lose control on their skateboard. And they fall and they hear something snap. At first come the cries of pain. They're heard from outside the house and then inside the house as the wounded comes running into the house in tears. And their their parent looks at them and they look at their arm, which doesn't quite look the same that it used to. They realize this isn't just a boo-boo. we got to go to the hospital. Now, of course, they told them they shouldn't do. They warned them these are the consequences of their behavior. But they realize just because someone got themselves into a predicament doesn't mean they're going to get better on their own. So it's off to the hospital, off to Children's Hospital. You're in the emergency department. They do x-rays. They want to find out what kind of fracture, what's the extent, how damaged is it. And the good news is they don't need surgery. They'll just need a cast. But before you can really put the cast on, you got to make things right. you got to put things straight. You're going to have to set the bone. And that's going to hurt. But it's the only way to keep things from becoming permanently out of place so they can be restored to the way they're supposed to be. I mention that because Paul writes, verse 1, that love's response to a person who is caught in a sin is to, quote, restore them. It's this Greek word, katarizo, and it's the same word that they would use for setting a dislocated bone back into place. The idea is to see them restored to their former condition of spiritual health so they can live lives of freedom the way that they're meant to. Practically speaking, that means confronting the reality of their own brokenness, their own sin. And that hurts. But it's as necessary for their spiritual health as what a doctor does is for our physical health. Hear this. The goal of calling someone's sin out is never their shame. It's never their hurt. It is always their restoration. It's for their sake and for the sake of Christ, whose body they're a part of. If you skip down to verse 10, Paul uses this language to help us understand how should we see the other person. He uses the language of family. Think of how you would want a doctor treating a member of your family with a broken bone. How would you want them setting the bone of your child, your mother, your brother, your sister? The same way you'd want them to set your own. As gently as possible while still accomplishing the task. So it's not surprising in verse 1 that Paul says that restoring should be done also gently. Not out of anger, not with a posture of, of superiority to them, not looking down on them as if we're immune to temptations ourselves. Otherwise, we'll actually do more harm than good. Not restoring them, but destroying them. And yet this restoration is, is vital. In fact, it's, it, the reason why it's vital is, amongst other reasons, is that actions have consequences. Their actions have consequences. Ours have consequences. It's what Paul's talking about in verses 7 and 8 when he talks about sowing and reaping. Or if you would rather, planting and harvesting. So here's your agriculture 101. Everybody there knew that when you plant a tomato seed, it grew tomatoes. It never, grant, it never grew into an uh, apple tree, and apple seeds never grew into tomato plants. It's what you would call the law of sowing or the law of returns. But as another pastor put it, the law of returns is just as unstoppable in the moral and the spiritual realm as it is in the agricultural world. If you're sowing weeds, you're growing weeds. So Paul warns in verse 8, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. That's why the ministry of restoration is ultimately about their own welfare, not about getting something off of our chest. 
but about not just you and not just them. Because to use this example that Paul's like to use of the body, if you ever had back problems, you ever had back pains or something out of, you know, sorts, you realize that if left untreated, it's not long before you start having pain elsewhere in the body. You see, if we follow Paul's metaphor, the ministry of restoration is not only for their benefit, but for the benefit of those that they're in relationship with, the people that are going to be most affected by the sin that this person is caught in. So who's up to the task? I mean, who feels that they're really ready for this? Paul actually tells us, you, it says in verse 1, you who are spiritual, this is what to do. Two verses earlier, he says it in a different way. Those who live by the Spirit. And so, of course, we're thinking, all right, so the super-Christians. Nah, don't hear what Paul is not saying. It's not about the super-Christians. It's not about the fault-finding watchdogs of the faith. Just everyday, ordinary followers of Jesus. Those who have the Spirit of God living in them. Those who are seeking to live by that Spirit. In other words, it's a message for all of us. And it's a ministry that, if we're honest, we all need. But it's not the only ministry that we need. You see, in verse 2, Paul writes, carry each other's burdens. Now, if you've ever helped somebody move, you understand something very clearly. For example, if you've ever tried to help somebody move a very heavy, awkward-looking couch up a stairwell that doesn't go straight, um, and it's falling apart, and it's made when they you swear they made everything out of cast iron and steel— you know that some things are just too heavy to try carrying on your own. Some burdens should not be borne by yourself. That's what Paul was referring to, but of course it's not furniture that he's talking about carrying. Carrying someone else's burdens means helping them bear the hardships or the trials or the temptations that would just be too challenging to do on your own, either because of their persistence or because of their intensity. It means we're moving towards each other in our struggles. Maybe one of the more beautiful pictures I've seen of this was a story that I heard from a guy that I met in Ohio once. Um, his, one of his kids growing up had a chronic illness. Uh, the symptoms would usually strike like about every eight weeks or so, about one in the morning when he would start vomiting uncontrollably. They, they knew that, that if they left it untreated, it would go on for up to a week, every 30 minutes and they couldn't stand that. So, of course, every single time they would go to the hospital because it would require some intense treatments, some very heavy meds that you couldn't just get, you know, over the counter. And so, every time, every eight weeks, it was off to the emergency room, waiting for hours and hours, them asking questions, taking tests. And meanwhile, the parents saying, we don't need that, we don't need that, don't waste your time doing this, we know what the problem is, he was here eight weeks ago and eight weeks before that, we know what he needs. It would only be hours and hours later after seeing the pain on their child's face that treatment would finally come. This went on for years for this family until one day someone in their church, a nurse, said, I've heard about your, your child's problems. Let me tell you what. When your child starts vomiting in the middle of the night, you pick up the phone and you call me. So they did. She would keep supplies ready so that when the call came that she could actually go to their home and treat the child in his own bed while she would wait up with him through the night, making sure that he was okay, saving them hours and hours of waiting and saving the child hours and hours of endless pain and suffering each time. Why would you do such a thing? 
she says in her own words to them, because your burden is my burden. And yet the reality is you don't have to be a nurse making house calls to carry each other's burdens. It can look a lot of different ways. It can simply look like offering to, to babysit a single parent's children so that they can go and do the errands that otherwise would take five times as long without that assistance. It could be providing a listening ear after someone has had a really hard day. It could be offering to help with necessary expenses that you realize they just can't afford. Maybe when their car starts having problems and it won't start so they can't get to work and keep their job. Uh, Maybe when they realize they have to make a tough choice between having food on the table this month or having heat in the winter. It's what all of you are going to be doing in various ways as you participate in the food drive for the Grace and Peace Food Pantry or delivering a meal at the women's shelters on Sunday nights like tonight. It can look like delivering uh, support and offering encouragement to those who are caught in temptation that starting to become worse so they don't end up becoming, quote, caught the way that Paul describes in verse 1. It could be offering a temporary place to stay when someone's in a very unsafe or unwise living situation. Basically, it just means paying attention to the needs of others and looking for ways that you can practically help meet those needs, even if it's just something that seems very little. And yet carrying each other's burdens in reality is a two-way street. It also means becoming open with others about our own burdens, our own needs, so that others can bear them. Not, not in a manipulative fashion, but simply letting your needs be known because letting others love you includes letting them know how they can actually love you. Whether it's bearing another's burden or allowing them to bear yours, you can't do it from a distance. See, the very image of bearing someone else's burden implies that you're close enough to them that you can both come under the same weight so you can carry it together. You can't help a burdened person unless you're actually near the burdened person and their burdens. It's what happens for you most often throughout the week in the context of your community groups where you get to know each other well enough that when things come up in life, you already have a supportive network who knows you and loves you and know what loving you well looks like. And in all of this, including other things in this passage we don't have time to address in one sermon, all of them are just living out practically what verse 10 says. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers, paying attention to the needs of others and giving them whatever love discerns as their need in the moment, whether whatever that burden can be, external or internal, something they're aware of or something that they can't yet see. Why don't we just live this way naturally? Well, back to the story of Achilles. It probably wouldn't be a stretch to say that all the actions and attitudes that we would find problematic in his character uh, could be traced back to his personal quest for honor and glory for himself. But what if we're not that different from Achilles? What if we, too, have the same problem? What if the biggest hunger that we experience is also for glory, to have significance, to feel that we actually matter? I recently uh, uh, learned that this hunger, or the, the, the fear of missing out on this thing that we hunger for, actually has a name. For shorthand, it's called FOBO. Uh, longer, it's fear of being ordinary. Like, there's magazine articles being written about this today. And yet behind this deep insecurity that's so pronounced that people have to write articles about it is a perceived absence of glory and honor. 
a sense of lacking that leads us to try to fill that void, to try to prove our worth to ourselves and to others. And in the search for significance, in the search for glory, the way that we often try to seek it is through competition with each other, through comparisons with each other, basically measuring ourselves against each other, which is basically what Paul is talking about in verse 4 and right before and after. See, it's not simply about uh, feeling that we're smart or funny or attractive, but that compared to that person, I feel smarter, funnier, more attractive, more accomplished. I feel superior. And yet it can go the other way too. We can find ourselves feeling inferior when we meet someone else who we think is smarter than us, more attractive than us, more accomplished than us, funnier than us what Paul is talking about in verse 26 when he says, let us not become conceited. It's a word basically meaning proud without any good reason for it. A false sense of honor and glory because of how we compare with the next person. The two things that Paul mentions right after are the ways that conceit usually expresses itself. Provoking and envying. Provoking is basically what follows from an attitude of superiority towards Another. It's about challenging another that you don't think measures up to you because you're sure that you'll win that battle or just by engaging in it with you, just by you provoking them, they've already lost. I, I saw a picture of this when I was in middle school with uh, two guys that were in my grade. We'll call them uh, Jim and Kevin. Uh, Jim was a pretty athletic guy. Um, he was on the basketball team, and so was Kevin. Jim was a starter on the A team. Uh, Kevin came off the bench on the C team. Uh, Jim got offered athletic scholarships later on to college because of his ability to take large, heavy objects and throw them really far distances and eventually became a conference champion in college in the discus throw. Kevin didn't get anything like that offer. So you can imagine, if, if you want to picture Kevin... Um, close to my height, a little bit shorter, probably 30 pounds lighter. Um, and you can imagine Jim leaning over to Kevin, maybe flexing a little bit, the day that he said, hey, Kevin, how much can you bench? I can bench, I don't know, 2 million pounds it could have been. I don't remember. Now, here's the thing. I knew them both. Jim and Kevin didn't talk. They didn't hang out. They weren't friends. Jim wasn't just curious. He was provoking Kevin. Everybody knew he was twice as strong as him. But he wanted him to say that to Jim's face. But here's the thing. Feeling of superiority can look like that, but it can look a lot of different ways. It can be arguing contentiously at the drop of a hat because you always have to win. It could be picking fights that don't really need to be fought. It's not being able to let things go or overlook an offense. It could, it could look like being quick to criticize, but at the same time, slow to offer help, encouragement, affirmation, or support. And yet conceit doesn't just lead us to feeling superior to others because sometimes when you play the comparison game, you lose. And as a result, we find ourselves feeling inferior. That's why Paul talks about and warns about envying the other person. Um, once heard a story of a group of women who got together to catch up. Um, they were all unmarried, but one of them had just recently been out on a date. If you've been part of that conversation, you kind of imagine what it's like, you know, one of them suddenly just lights up. You know, she starts talking about, you know, the shoes that she wore, that funny thing that he said, where they go, how long they've known each other and how they met. And as you see, like, her eyes lighting up and her body posture start to lean in, the eyebrows starting to raise, 
you would also see the exact opposite body language on the other side of the table until another woman finally says, why do you get all the dates? And it wasn't her asking for advice. It wasn't a question seeking answers. It was the voice of envy interjecting. You see, envy is simply that feeling of wanting something that rightfully belongs to another or not wanting someone else to have something that you don't have. But however it expresses itself, the conceited heart is constantly focusing on how the other makes you look and feel, not how you make them look and feel. Whether provoking or envying behind them both as a heart that is self-absorbed, trying to gain worth through competition at the expense of the other, playing the same comparison game, whether the winner or the loser, the one provoking or the one envying. Because the reality is when we're self-absorbed, we're not looking for how to do good to other people. See, when a sense of conceited superiority creeps in, we can find ourselves looking down on other people, not bearing their burdens or even letting our own burdens be known because we fail to see that we too have burdens that we actually need others to help carry not able to restore someone gently because we actually think we're better than them, that their sin is somehow worse than our sin. And maybe it's knowing this reality that led Paul to phrase things the way he does in verse 1. To say that someone is, quote, caught in a sin, using that passive tense of the word, is to actually say that sin is the aggressor, that sin is the real enemy. They, on the other hand, are your brother. They're your sister. They're your family in Christ. A sense of superiority can lead us to misidentify the true enemy in a situation. But on the other hand, a sense of inferiority that leads to envy can make us downplay another person's real burdens so we don't even think of them as people that actually need us to help carry them. You know, a sense of inferiority can also lead us to want the approval of the other person that we see as superior. We want it so bad that we would never even dream of identifying the sin in their life that's destroying them and destroying others. And all of it comes from the same root, a hunger and honor that longs to be satisfied so much so that we end up cannibalizing each other, that we bite and devour each other in the comparison game. If that's what keeps our relationships from looking the way that they actually should, how is it overcome? How are these kinds of redemptive, restorative, burden-bearing relationships possible? Paul gives us the answer in verse 25 in a word by the Spirit. He writes there, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That last phrase basically means simply living out of the life and the identity that you have because the Holy Spirit lives in you because of faith in Christ. In other words, it's not a matter of do this in order to become, to prove yourself spiritual, but doing according to who you already are in Christ. You see, at the heart of our honor and our glory-hungry souls is this desire to gain something that we feel that we're lacking. And there's a reason why we hunger for it. In, the, in Psalm 8, it describes humanity this way, the way God originally created us as, quote, crowned with glory and honor, the pinnacle of God's creation, divinely appointed to reflect God's image and to rule over the creation, given an intimate place of prominence and purpose. You see, the reason that we hunger for these things is that we're quite literally made for them. They're rooted in what it means to be human. The only problem comes 
is when we start to seek them the wrong way and from the wrong place. Not from God by simply living as we're created to, but from each other through our competition with them. As we've all fallen short of how God created us to be, we start feeling that glory vacuum that's created by it. Or in the words of Paul when he wrote to the church in Rome, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Humanity has been scrambling to bridge that glory gap ever since. Sometimes through comparisons, but sometimes through trying to do religion so well that we feel that we can finally say that we have God's favor and approval. And yet all of these things are just self-salvation projects, the exact opposite of what Paul calls living by the Spirit. They're not the path leading to eternal life, but to destruction. You see, what we need to live the way that Paul is talking about here is to have our hunger for glory and honor deeply satisfied by another source. Not from our performance, not from our comparisons, but from God himself. And since the reason that we miss out on the glory we're made for is is our own sin, our own crimes against God, our own perpetual inability to fulfill God's law, God's solution was that someone else could fulfill it for us. The essence of that law is what we see in chapter 5. If we back up a few verses to verse 14, it says the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you want to know what fulfilling that law, the law of Christ, actually looks like, we'll just look again at verse 2. Carry each other's burdens. And nobody fulfilled that law better than Jesus Christ. You see, in his life, Jesus carried the burden of perfectly fulfilling God's law, a burden that we could never bear ourselves, not just loving our neighbors as ourselves, but also loving God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, 100% of our strength, something that we don't even come close to doing. But the law of God also carries with it the responsibility of living by it, and yet also the penalty that comes when we don't. And yet on the cross, Jesus also bore that burden. Having no sin of his own, the burden that he carried there on the cross would be the burden of the sin of others. And the punishment that he bore on the cross would be punishment that was due to others. And to who? To all those who would trust Jesus to bear their burdens. See, the reason Jesus' followers are called to carry each other's burdens is because Jesus did that for us first. The reason we're called to move towards those who are caught in a sin is that Jesus first saw us caught in our sin. And yet what it took to restore us would hurt Jesus far more than it would hurt us. It would cost him his life. It would cost the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus so there would be no wrath left for those who are in Christ. Friends, if you realize this morning that you just struggle to carry each other's burdens, you don't want to do that. You struggle to want to see somebody restored with a gentle heart. Then let me just ask you this morning, do you believe that you had a burden that you could never carry on your own that Jesus bore for you? Do you believe that the work of Jesus is actually what restores you? Do you believe that that's what Jesus did for you? That Jesus had the right to literally say to each and every one of us, to hell with them, but instead went to hell for you. If so, living by the Spirit 
means daily preaching this message to ourselves, living as if it's actually true that all the glory and the honor due to Jesus is now yours. His perfect life, his obedience are now credited to your account because of your faith in Christ, that you have nothing left to prove, that you're done with the performance treadmill, that the highest court in the universe has already declared that you are significant, that you are loved. In the end, What it takes is a Christ-centered humility to actually bear the burdens of others. A humility and a confidence that actually come from the same source, from believing that Jesus bore your burden on the cross. These uh, last few weeks I've been um, watching a documentary uh, called The Vietnam War uh, by uh, Lynn Novick and and Ken Burns. Uh, Watching it, there was one story that really just stood out to me. It was actually about a Missouri native Uh, Marine Corporal John uh, Musgrave. It was in the fall of 1967 that he found himself ambushed at the Battle of Contien. The first shot that he took immediately put him down, face first in the mud, no more than 10 feet from enemy fire. By any measure, a wounded man that close to his enemy would be considered a goner. From the first day of boot camp, every Marine learns this one thing. Marines don't leave their dead and they never leave their wounded. While laying their face down, Musgrave soon felt two arms suddenly come underneath his shoulders to lift him up and carry him to safety. And yet not without a cost. Soon another barrage of fire came and hit both him and the Marine who was carrying him, knocking both of them to the ground. This this 18-year-old kid, he was reflecting, just saw what happened to him and still came for him. Now with both of these men lying on the ground, wounded and in pain, Musgrave remembered hearing some horrible screaming sounds. And he tried to figure out where the horrible noise was coming from. And and it wasn't from the one next to him. He realized the horrible noise was coming from himself. Because his ribs had just been shattered. His lungs pierced. His nerves cut. Seeing what happened to him, though, didn't dissuade the Marines and his unit. Soon more men came and they fell right on top of both of them, covering them from enemy fire, then picking them up and carrying them a little bit further and covering them again, carrying them further still and then covering them again until they were free and in safety, but all the while risking their lives to bring their brothers back. Musgrave was so badly wounded that he would have been triaged three times later afterwards, each time basically considered good as dead. But in the end, when he finally was treated, it would take 17 months in a Navy hospital before he was well enough to go home. But it didn't take 17 months, it didn't take 17 seconds for Musgrave to realize that he was not going to get out of this ordeal on his own. He didn't just need someone that could carry his burdens. He needed somebody to carry him. And if necessary, the men in his unit were willing to die before they would leave him behind. As he shared in that documentary, That's why he's alive to tell that story today. It's a story so different from that of Achilles. It's a true story that echoes another true story. You see, when God saw us dead in our sins, he didn't just call in Jesus to restore us, but to revive us. His body was broken. His blood was shed 
on the cross so that he could cover us, not just with his forgiveness, but with his own righteousness and the glory and the honor of the only son of God attributed to our accounts. He didn't just carry our burdens. Jesus carried us in doing so. He didn't just risk his life. Jesus gave his life. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you so that you in turn could reflect that same type of love, that same restorative, burden-bearing relationship that you've received from Christ and turn it around into your relationships with others. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our spiritual brokenness, when you had every right to abandon us, every right to leave us, every right to come down on us, instead you came down for us, showing us your grace, bearing the burdens that we could never bear ourselves so that we could be transformed, so we could not only know that love and grace in our lives, but that it would spill over into the lives of others, not ignoring people who are being destroyed by the sin in them and around them, but gently coming to do the work that you already did in a greater way for us, not ignoring the burdens that others are left to bear because we realize you bore a much greater burden for us. Father, may this reminder at this table, this sacrament, this means of grace, empower us, enable us to go on and show the same grace to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.